Hello and welcome to the hot seat. I'm here with Maya Rasmussen to discuss the upcoming European elections. Maya, welcome. Thank you. First of all, will these European elections be different? And if they are, why? Well, the European Parliament is running the campaign under the banner that this time is different. And it's claiming that this time is different because um, the European Parliament can indirectly choose the Commission president. Uh, So in the Lisbon Treaty, which came into force in December 2009, it was stated that the European Council, where you have the European heads of states, had to take into account the outcome of the European Parliament election when they appoint um, the head of the European Commission, which is currently Barroso. And uh, the head of the European Commission then had to be approved by the European Parliament. Now, interestingly, the European Parliament has interpreted this as uh, their right to choose who becomes the new commission of, um, sorry, who becomes the president of the European Commission. So each of the big political groups have put forward uh, candidates which they would like to become the new president of the European Commission if they get uh, to be the biggest group in the European Parliament. So currently from the three biggest groups, you have three candidates from the EPP. You've got uh, the Belgium Jean-Claude Juncker, who is a former prime minister of Belgium and who for a long time until uh, the end of 2013 served as, as the president of the Eurogroup. Then from the SND, you got uh, the German Social Democrat Martin Schulz, who is currently the president in um, the European Parliament. Uh, and then lastly, uh, from the uh, elder group, you got a guy from Belgium called Guy Verhofstadt, who also has a past as a uh, prime minister in Belgium. So, so they're hoping, if the EPP becomes the biggest group, they're hoping that their uh, nominated uh, uh, person for the commission president will become the actual commission president. Um, But you could also say that this time is different if you look through another pair of lenses. So you could look at the fact that we have gone through um, a hard uh, economic and financial crisis. Uh, You could can see in opinion polls, if you look at your barometer, that there is a really low trust in the EU. So 60% of uh, the last respondents who were asked about the trust in the EU institutions in the Eurobarometer surveys said that they had really low trust. So in a way, you could see uh, the European Parliament elections as, a, as, a, as a somehow as taking the temperature of the public confidence in the EU institutions. So that would be another way uh, to answer your question why this time is different. So what uh, impact does the European Parliament have in the appointment of the Commission? Well, you could, you could talk about kind of two stages of, of having an impact. So first of all, they need to approve of the European Council's um, nominee for the president of the European Commission. And as I talked about before, um, the nominated person for the president of the European Commission um, it's likely to uh, be influenced by the European Parliament elections in terms of that he or she would come from a group um, that is also going to be the biggest groups in the European Parliament. So it will be of the same ideological colour, most likely, but it's not entirely sure. 
Of course, it is a whole puzzle in the sense that there are several posts where the EU institutions need to find a person for. So you got the president of the European Commission, you got um, the higher representatives of foreign and security affairs, where you currently have Lady Ashton in the seat, and you got to find uh, a new president of the European Council, where you have Van Rompuy at the moment. So in a way, it's a little bit of a puzzle because you have to get to agreement between these three seats and they will most likely be negotiated at the same time. So lots of things are at play when, when you have to decide who's taking up these three different seats. But once um, the commission president is, um, is settled and has been approved by the European Parliament by a simple majority, the European uh, commission president would then um, come up with a suggestion for who should be the commissioner of each of the different policy areas. And this would be based on the nominees that have been put forward by national governments. And uh, in the treaty, it's stated that the entire commission has to be approved by the European Parliament. So in the treaty, it's not stated that the Parliament can kind of sack nominees for individual commissioners. But in reality, what has happened is that Parliament quite often likes to interpret its power uh, as being more than what is stated in the treaty. So they have since 1994 instituted uh, these hearings in each of the committees where they invite um, the, the commission designate for a particular policy area to come and before the European Parliament and be part of a hearing. So it's almost a little bit of an audition. And following these hearings, uh, the conference of um, committee chairs will send a letter to the commission president where they would comment on the abilities of this uh, commission designate in the particular policy area. They will talk about their personal qualifications and their ability to talk before the European Parliament. They might even uh, comment on whether or not they like the person, if they think the person is humorous or not. Or not. Uh, and then... Um, the commission president decides on the basis of that whether he wants to uh, keep all of the commission designates, commissioner designates. It has happened in the past, in 2009, that the commission president at the time, Barroso, uh, decided to remove one of his candidates, um, a Bulgarian commissioner designate, because he was not approved by informally by uh, the European Parliament. So, so even though on paper they don't have influence to sack individual nominees, in reality they can put pressure on the commission president to remove and replace uh, one commission designate. What are the polls showing in terms of a likely outcome of the elections? So you got Poll Watch, uh, which is uh, run by, um, by Simon Hicks here at the LSE, together with some people in Brussels, looking at um, the polls in all 28 member states and aggregating it and looking at, well, what uh, political groups are likely to get most seats and how many seats are they likely to get inside the European Parliament. And you can see two trends. So first of all, you can see that the big political groups, the socialist group, the SND, the EPP, the centre-right, and the liberal group, ALDE, is going to go uh, back in terms of the number of seats they have at the moment. So for instance, um, the EPP, according to the polls at the moment, are going to lose 59 seats inside the European Parliament. The socialist groups are going to use, lose nine seats and the liberal groups are going to lose 22 seats. 
Another trend we can see is that the uh, fringe groups are going to um, to do really well if if we trust the opinion polls, and that we're going to have a lot of non-attached members inside the European Parliament. So, in a sense, uh, the European Parliament is coming becoming much more fragmented if we look at the diversity of political political parties uh, you're going to have inside the Parliament. So what will all of this mean for the, the actual workings of the European Parliament? Well, it will paradoxically mean that the Parliament is going to be more fragmented in terms of the diversity in political parties they have, but the day-to-day politics is going to be more centrist. Um, and that, that can sound a little bit... Um, as a paradox, because why, if you have uh, a strengthening of the extreme right and the extreme left, why are you going to see a much more centred parliament? But the reason is to be found in the voting rules inside the European Parliament. So in the second reading, you need to have a qualified majority to get things through at the plenary. And uh, there you already have what is called an absolute um, Sorry, they already have a grand coalition because you have an absolute majority whereby the big groups, the Audi, the Socialist and the EPP, they vote together. But because the elder group in the middle has until now had the role as a little bit of a kingmaker, you had seen situation in certain policy areas where uh, the winning coalition will be made up of uh, the EPP and elder group. You have seen that especially on economic and internal market matters, whereas in other policy areas such as the environment um, and civil rights, you have seen a winning coalition consisting of the elder group and the SND and a few, few of the fringes groups on the centre-left. Centre but because the elder group is going to suffer so significantly if the opinion polls are correct, they would no longer be able to, to be the kingmaker inside the European Parliament. And that means, in order to get legislation passed, that the SND, uh, the centre-left group, and the EPP, the centre-right groups, will have to vote together in most of the votes in order to carry things through the European Parliament. So, for instance, uh, you could look at some very important votes that we're going to have in the new Parliament, which is the trade agreement between the EU and the US, which has not been finalised yet, and the new parliament starting in September will have to vote upon this. And there you could imagine that the agreement would look slightly different because there were lots of concerns that the Socialists um, and the Greens did not get into the agreement, such as concerns about um, labour rights, employee rights uh, and employment concerns. And, and, and given that uh, the SND and EPP will have to vote together, you could imagine... That, that some of these concerns will have to be addressed. Similarly, you could also imagine on the annual budgets that that could be more difficult to pass because that's usually an area where the socialist and the centre-right, the EPP, uh, are often at loggerheads with one another. Uh, so there you could imagine that negotiations would take a lot longer to go through the parliament and things will become somehow less efficient because compromises between the left and the right will have to be found. So what sort of role have the, um, the Eurosceptic right parties to play in the parliament when it gets down to it doing its day-to-day work? Well, generally you can see that, that they don't have a lot of influence over the, the, the voting outcomes in the European Parliament because many of them, they refuse to participate 
in the legislative works of the European Parliament, they don't put forward amendments. Uh, they, they are very reactionary, so they quite often vote no at the plenary sessions or they completely stay away. Uh, so that's kind of the commonality between these extreme right-wing MEPs. But generally, you could talk about kind of free roles uh, among uh, right-wing MEPs. And, and uh, this is uh, based on a study by Natalie Brack from Brussels, who finds that uh, MEPs on the extreme right can either be seen as kind of absentees, uh, public speakers or pragmatists. So the absentees is, is the typical MEP such as um, Nick Griffin or um, Marie Le Pen, uh, who would hardly spend any time in the European Parliament. They are they're hardly ever present. Uh, they only come to the plenary once in a while because they want to avoid having sanctions for not being there. And they spent most of the time at the national level uh, rallying and campaigning against the EU. So they are very present at the national level and in the national media, but not in the European Parliament. Then you have a politician such as Nigel Farage, as we have talked about earlier, who is seen as a public speaker. So again, he doesn't really participate in much of the legislative work. He doesn't get rapporteurships. He doesn't really write amendments. He hardly uh, participates in the vote in the plenary. And when he participates, he usually votes no as a, as a reaction against the EU system. But he's very active. So he holds lots of speeches. He would write lots of questions to the European Commission. Uh, and the Commission has to respond to these questions. So in that sense, he's been very active inside the European Parliament by holding speeches both in the European Parliament and also nationally. And he has a lot of presence, or these types of MEPs have a lot of presence in the national media. And then lastly, you've got the kind of pragmatic MEP where you could talk about the British Conservatives, you could talk about the Danish People's Party, who know that their views... Um, in some areas uh, are, are not kind of part of the mainstream views. Uh, they're very EU critical towards certain aspects, but they also want to try to get influence where they can. So they do acknowledge that they don't get a lot of rapporteurships and they don't have a lot of, of influence, but they nevertheless try to kind of participate in the work of the European Parliament by writing amendments, um, by voting and by being very active. So if we look at the first two types, the absent uh, right-wing MEP and the public speaker, you could say that although they don't have a lot of tangible influence in the European Parliament, they are able to set the discourse nationally. And in that way, uh, they might be able to undermine the legitimacy of the EU by uh, constantly criticising the EU and getting a lot of airtime in the national media. So they are, they are able to kind of frame the debate nationally. And you see that with the um, theme of, or the fear of welfare tourism, that that is a fear uh, and a theme that takes up a lot of time in the national media, not only in the UK, but also in Denmark, the Netherlands and Germany. And it is a fear that has been brought forward particularly by right-wing uh, populist parties and then also taken up by mainstream parties because they have not been able to avoid it. So nationally, they can really influence the discourse and the narrative of the EU and then in that sense indirectly, um, indirectly stall the integration process in the long run. All right. Thank you very much, Maya. You're off the hot seat. Thank you.